0: Buongiorno a tutti. Benvenuto a Storie de Simmetria. Mi chiamo Beniamino Lebute. Mi dispiace, mi scusi. That was inconsiderate of me. Many of you I know don't speak Italian, and even if you do, you're expecting a podcast in English. So let me restart. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Labut, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, the season three premiere. This fortnightly podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. It can be confusing, or even daunting, to be tossed into the mix without a good understanding of what's going on. In this spirit, today's episode comes by way of a listener suggestion to give some backstory to, or rather an overview of, the story that has shaped humanity more than any other. This is, of course, the sacred book, i.e. the Holy Bible, or, in Italian, La Sacra Biblia. Let's start off with the observation that the Bible has a lot to it. It spans a massive timeline, had dozens of contributing authors and editors, each with a unique literary style. It is not necessarily in chronological order, and sometimes retells the same story multiple times, or from different perspectives, it has a small army's worth of characters, and on top of all that, it takes place in what are, for most people, unfamiliar places and cultures of the ancient world. Let's be honest, even if you've grown up hearing or learning about the major events and people, it can be tough to piece it all together. I'll also note that, when I hear the Bible taught, it is often done through a fine focus, with the aperture narrowed down to analyze only a small text which might be less than a full sentence. And though this technique has its own utility and merits, unless we step back and describe the big picture, it can be difficult to link the parts together. Therefore, let's take today for a quick, high-level overview of that famous anthology called the Bible. Lastly, it should be assumed that since the work is so large and dense, I will obviously not be able to address many parts, perhaps even your favorite parts. But if you're wondering where some of the biggest pieces fall, people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus, and events like the plagues in Egypt, the tabernacle, and the crucifixion, then this episode is for you. And as it's a long one, let's jump right in. Chapter 1. Creation and the Early Works, Genesis Part 1. The Protestant version of the Bible is divided into 66 smaller works, each of which is called a book. The Roman Catholic version of the Bible includes additional works, collectively called the Apocrypha, which brings its total count to 73. Regardless, though, of whether you read the Protestant, the Catholic, or even the Jewish Bible, It begins with a book called Genesis. Its opening verse, the opening line of the Bible, depending on which translation you use, reads something like In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, then, is where the Bible begins, with the creation of the universe and all it holds. For six days, God incrementally created, and on the seventh day, stopped and rested. Shortly thereafter, the Bible paints the picture of a paradisal oasis, which we know as the Garden of Eden. In that place of delight, God placed a person, and because a creature was formed from the dirt, we refer to that first human as Adam, because it sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt or soil. God saw that the human needed a partner who was of the same substance, so God cleaved Adam in half and created a second, consubstantial human, He gave each of the two complementary attributes. Thus, male and female were created. The narrative's drama increases when these two chose to eat fruit from a tree about which God had told them not to eat. In choosing to disobey God, they fractured the relationship between God and humans and between each other. In consequence, the two were expelled from the garden. At this point, the characters are generally called Adam and Eve. Adam is applied to the male, and Eve to the female. Some time later, Adam and Eve had two sons, Abel and Cain. One day, each of them brought an offering to God, but God regarded Abel's and not Cain's. The brothers had a heated exchange which culminated in Cain's killing Abel. This was the first murder in the Bible. Thereafter, Adam and Eve had a third son named Seth. One of his descendants was Noah, and he was commanded by God to build a special refuge to safeguard creation as God wrought an all consuming flood. The Ark, as it is called, was a large watercraft in which Noah, his family, and much of God's creation withstood a deluge that otherwise wiped out everything on land. When the water finally subsided, the contents of the Ark were released to reboot life on earth, just as Noah and his family rebooted humanity. It's tough, however, to teach an old dog new tricks, so mankind began to unravel once again. The quintessential example of this is the story of the Tower of Babel, wherein people challenged God's preeminence through the creation of a grand tower. Through this point, we've seen creation, the Garden of Eden, The forbidden fruit and mankind's resultant fall. We encountered Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the reseeding of earth, and the Tower of Babel. Here, we can pause and draw a line in the sand. The first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is essentially an introduction to the rest of the Bible's narrative, but the first part of Genesis is itself an introduction to the introduction. These first stories have a distinctive flavor. Reminiscent of many ancient mythologies, in the sense that these stories tried to explain the world and some of its most interesting questions, like, for example, how were human beings created, and who was the first one? But more importantly, they establish where both the race and the Bible will go from here. In this first portion of Genesis, the relationship between God and people was broken, and the world and humanity itself was hurt in the process. The rest of the story will be about restoring that relationship and putting the world back to right. Chapter 2. The Patriarchs. Genesis Part 2. Moving forward into the rest of Genesis, the focus of the narrative shifts from broad ideas to a single family, beginning with that family's patriarch, A man named Abraham. God told Abraham to leave his country and journey into a land that Abraham had not seen before, the land of Canaan. God promised that country to Abraham and his descendants, thus it is also called the Promised Land. Taking a small excursus, let's mention the venue of the Bible. There are lots of locations mentioned throughout the book and adding to the confusion is the remote and extensive time frame in which the events are described. The names of places change throughout the Bible, and their locations do not necessarily correspond to modern places with the same names, and we are not certain about the locations of many events. Notwithstanding, picture the Mediterranean Sea, with Europe to its north, Italy and Greece being peninsula that extend into it, and with North Africa on the southern shore, much of the biblical narrative takes place on the east side of the sea, that is, on the right-hand side of the mental map, in what is often called the Near East. Abraham's story, and his promised land, is somewhat approximated by the boundaries of modern-day Israel, but the stories of the Bible extend beyond even that. To Egypt in the west, where we encounter Joseph, Moses, and others. To Mesopotamia in the east, where we read about Esther and Daniel in the lion's den, the Babylonian exile, and more. South, to parts of the Arabian Peninsula, where Moses exiled himself and encountered a burning bush. And also to the north, to Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome, where many early Christian communities were planted. So when you think about the Bible, find modern-day Israel on a map, put a pin in it, and then expand outward from there. These are the places where the stories of the Bible were set. Returning to the narrative, Abraham and his wife Sarah traveled to the Promised Land. For a long time, they had no children together. But by God's promise, they conceived an old age and had a son named Isaac. He you might recognize from the story wherein God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. But just before the deed was done, God stayed Abraham from killing Isaac. And, as we elaborated on in Season 1, Episode 1, they were commended for their unwavering faith and wholehearted willingness to trust and follow God's instructions, even when those instructions were baffling. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, the younger of these fraternal twins, was later renamed to Israel after he experienced a life-changing encounter with God. Jacob Israel, then, had twelve sons between four mothers. The families of the twelve sons, over time, grew and were organized into what we know as the twelve tribes of Israel. Before that happened, however, the last portion of Genesis focused heavily on just one of those brothers. Joseph was adored by his father Jacob, but hated by his brothers. So the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, he was taken to Egypt. Through an interesting series of events, including imprisonment and dream interpretation, Joseph ascended from his thraldom to become the vizier of Egypt, second in command of the entire country, answering to none but the pharaoh himself. Having been forewarned by God about an impending famine that would affect much of the known world, Joseph devised a plan to stockpile grain and avoid catastrophe. Meanwhile, Jacob, back in the Promised Land, sent his sons to Egypt to buy food. In this way, Joseph and his family were brought together. Joseph forgave his brothers and invited the entire family to Egypt. This is how the Israelites came to be in that country, and this is also where the book of Genesis roughly ends. Let's take a moment to recap. The first part of Genesis contains the stories of creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood, and others. The second part of Genesis focused on Abraham, his faithful walk with God, and his encounters in the Promised Land. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat twelve sons. Those men and their families all lived in the Promised Land and called it home. The third part of Genesis centered upon the generation of those twelve sons and the series of events many of which involved Joseph, that caused them to leave the promised land and sojourn in Egypt. They left their homeland because of a famine, but they intended to return. This is where Genesis, the introduction to the Bible, ends. Chapter 3 From Egypt to the Promised Land, Exodus through Deuteronomy. The second book of the Bible is called Exodus. It continues the narrative several generations after the events of Joseph, the famine, and the family's move to Egypt. It turns out that they never made it back to the Promised Land. They are still in Egypt, and they have grown from a large family into a small nation known as the Israelites named for their ancestor Israel, Ne'e Jacob. Over the years, the Egyptians have become harsh with them, relegating them into serfdom, where they are little better than slaves. Feeling threatened by the Israelites, the Egyptians instituted a policy of infanticide, putting to death all of the Israelite baby boys. Into this world, Moses was born. But placing their trust in God, his bold mother and sister, cleverly placed Moses in a basket and floated him down the Nile, where he was found and adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. When Moses became an adult, he saw the oppression of his people and killed one of the Egyptian overseers. When the deed became known, he was forced to flee Egypt. He escaped across the Sinai wilderness and settled in a land called Midian, where he became a shepherd and started a family. Moses was about 40 when he became a fugitive, and for about the next 40 years, he lived that shepherd's life. But it all changed one day, when he was captivated by the sight of a burning bush. Instance of a shrub on fire in and of itself is not necessarily noteworthy, given the region's arid climate. But what caught his attention was that, although it was on fire, it was not burning up. The plant was ablaze but not consumed. So Moses investigated. And when he was near to the bush, he heard the voice of God. The Almighty One spoke to Moses and told him to return to Egypt and liberate his people. What followed were the famous ten plagues of Egypt. Dialogue between Moses and the Pharaoh went nowhere. So God sent ten different plagues upon the land, culminating finally in the death of all firstborns. The Israelites were spared this fate through observation of the first-ever Passover. The meal included unleavened bread, bitter herbs, staffs in hand, and was celebrated inside homes, the door frames of which had been painted with the blood of lambs. Those who obeyed the Lord's instruction in this matter were passed over by the angel of death. Manumission followed that final plague. The Israelites were told to leave Egypt... And as they left, the Egyptians gave them fine outfits, precious metals, and all manner of valuable things. The path they followed was set by the art of God. The route took them across the Sinai Peninsula, up to the shore of the Red Sea, which is sometimes rendered Reed Sea, as the Hebrew can be validly read either way. A bevy of Egyptian charioteers who had gone in pursuit of the Israelites caught up with them there. With the cliffs and an army to his back, Moses stretched out his hand and staff toward the water, and God sent a strong wind to clear a path through the water. Thus, the people of God crossed the sea on dry land. And, after they had crossed, when the charioteers gave chase through the main, the water overtook them. Freed from their pursuers, the Israelites continued their journey to the mountain of God, called Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. The people camped at his base while Moses, their leader, went up to seek God. When Moses returned, he carried the Ten Commandments with him. This is the first time that we see or hear of the Ten Commandments, but their advent was accompanied by a new low point for the Israelites. While Moses had been absent, a large portion of the congregation had constructed a golden bull. Moses and God were enraged by this idolatry. Moses destroyed the idol, and then quite literally drew a line in the sand, told the god-worshippers to come to his side, and the ox-worshippers to go to theirs, and then he bid his fellows to kill the others. Sometime after this event, the people of God arrived at the border of the promised land. But before carelessly marching in and confronting who-knows-what was in the land, twelve spies, one from each tribe, were dispatched to search the land and report back. When they returned, ten of the spies spread fear and doubt, claiming that the Israelites would be powerless against the land's inhabitants. Yet two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, remained confident in God's ability to win the land for them. The faithlessness of the ten spies and their followers cost everyone dearly. God condemned the Israelites of that generation to exhaust their days wandering through the wilderness until all but Moses and the two faithful spies had died. Thus, the next 40 years were spent wandering. The Bible records many events that happened between leaving Egypt and entering the Promised Land, but here I will mention only four, in addition to what has already been said. The first is that God gave the people a special food called manna, which is anglicized as manna. It was a wafer-like consumable that came with the morning dew and tasted like honey. Additionally, God established the priesthood through Moses' brother Aaron and gave specific instructions about the attendance of Judaism. Festivals, sacrifices, rules, regulations, and more. God also gave instructions for the creation of an elaborate tent called a, or in this case, the tabernacle and the contents that were to be placed therein. Most notably, a special chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments, the head of Aaron's staff, and some manna, that special food. Finally, it should be noted that, on one occasion, Moses disobeyed God's instructions about how to obtain water for the congregation. And, for that transgression, he was forbidden from entering the Promised Land when the fateful day finally came. The book of Exodus began in Egypt, with a young child, in a basket, being floated down the Nile to escape infanticide. He, Moses, was found by an Egyptian princess, and so he spent most of his childhood and into adulthood in the courts of Egypt, removed from his countrymen's serfdom and suffering. At one point he went to see his fellow Israelites, and he killed an Egyptian overseer. When the murder became known, he fled across the wilderness and into exile. He lived there for a long time before God called him from a burning bush and told him to return to Egypt and free the people. Their liberation came in the form of ten plagues, and after the death of the firstborns, they left Egypt. Continuing through the book of Exodus and into Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the Israelites crossed the wilderness, passed through the Red Sea, and came to the mountain of God. There, God gave them the Ten Commandments and other instructions about how to manage the new nation they were forming. They journeyed farther on and came to the edge of the Promised Land, but because many doubted God's ability to win the land for them, the Lord turned them back and condemned them to wander for forty years until a new generation could rise up. This chapter of Israelite history concludes in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, who would not enter the Promised Land, nevertheless stood atop a mountain and looked out upon it. He passed his leadership to Joshua, the once-faithful spy who now faced the difficult task of crossing the Jordan River and leading the people to reclaim their ancestral home and promised land. Chapter 4, From Conquest to Kings The first book of the Bible, its introduction, is Genesis. The next four books, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, focus on Moses, his intendance of Israel's rise to nationhood and their new relationship with God, which was mediated through the Ten Commandments and other instructions such as Passover and the tabernacle that housed the Ark of the Covenant. In Judaism, this five-book collection is called the Torah, which roughly translates to teaching or instruction. In Christianity, it is often called the Pentateuch, which you can remember because pentos is five in Greek, like the shape pentagon. As previously noted, the fifth book, Deuteronomy ended just before the Israelites were going to enter into the Promised Land for the first time since the days of Joseph and his eleven brothers, several hundred years prior. The sixth book, then, Joshua, is about reclamation of that Promised Land, and without great stretch of the imagination, you can imagine that it was Joshua who led that conquest. Similar to how God parted the waters of the Red Sea roughly 40 years earlier, God parted the waters of the Jordan River and allowed the Israelites to cross over. Here, I should point out that, if you look at a map of the Near East, Israel is more or less between Egypt and the Jordan River. So it's fair to ask why the Israelites, having come from Egypt, need to cross through the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. The reason is because when they departed Egypt, the nation traveled southeast across the Sinai Peninsula, then crossed the Red Sea into the land of Midian, which is northern Saudi Arabia today, and north again into modern-day Jordan, which landed the Israelites east of the Jordan River, on the far side of the Promised Land with respect to Egypt. And if that geography is a bit confusing, then just remember that the Israelites swooped beneath the Promised Land and then came up on it from the other side. Once they crossed the Jordan, however, the land wasn't yet theirs for the taking. In their extended absence, other groups of people had settled the country. Accordingly, the book of Joshua recounts to the Israelites at wars with the inhabitants as they sought to retake the land that God had, so long ago, promised to Abraham and his descendants. The most famous adventure along the way happened early on at the city of Jericho. Spies were sent into Jericho on a reconnaissance mission. They would have been captured if it were not for the help of a local woman named Rahab. She trusted in the might of Israel's God, chose to aid the spies in exchange for the safety and fair treatment of her family and herself. The deal was made, and the spies returned to Joshua with their report. When it came time for the Israelites to attack Jericho, the Lord commanded them to engage in unconventional tactics. Instead of siege Jericho, God bid the Israelites to march around the city once per day for six days, and then to march around it seven times on the seventh day, and then after that seventh lap, to shout and blow trumpets and clamor with fury, after which, the Bible says, the walls came crumbling down. It was an easy victory thereafter, and, as promised, Rahab and her household were saved. By the end of the conquest, Joshua and the Israelites had managed to secure most of the promised land and it between the tribes. The territory stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the west, beyond the Jordan River to the east, from the Negev Desert to the south, and to the Galilean Heights to the north. With the land secured and divided, the time came for Joshua to die. Israel's leadership transitioned into a decentralized, more tribe-focused one that was led by chieftain-like figures called Judges. Though some Judges were exemplary, overall, they trended downward, away from godliness, righteousness, and effective leadership. Their tales are collected in the Book of Judges. Some you may have heard of include Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and of course Samson, whose uncut locks gave him preternatural strength until Delilah cut his hair and turned him over to his enemies. To summarize, then, Moses led the people from Egypt up to the Promised Land, and then Joshua led the people into it to conquer it, and then the judges led the people. The rule of the judges, called the Critarchy, lasted about 350 years, excluding Moses and Joshua. Next came the age of kings and prophets. Chapter 5. The Kingdom of Israel As we approach the time of kings, let me reiterate that I am only scratching the surface. Of even the major events, much will be left unsaid herein. Nevertheless, Let's discuss at least some of them, and help gather reference points for our approach to the Bible. The age of prophets and kings began with a man who is often considered the last judge and first prophet. His name was Samuel, and during his reign, even though he was a good leader, the people cried out for a king. So, per God's guidance, Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul was tall, strong, handsome, and looked like a king. He might have even become a great king, but early in his reign, he disobeyed God's instructions. Thereafter, the Lord withdrew his support for Saul and gave it instead to a young man named David. God told Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel. However, a lot happened between the anointing and the actual assumption of the role. David waited for something on the order of decades. Some of his highlights during that time include his becoming a court musician for Saul, slaying the Philistine champion Goliath, forming a close friendship with Saul's son Jonathan, and becoming an increasingly renowned warrior. A popular song was sung about David during these years. It went, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. These lyrics enraged King Saul, who then, in what we could only describe as paranoia, determined to kill David. David lived in exile for several years, and when he was in Israel, was harried and sought by the king. Eventually, though, Saul died in battle, along with his son, Jonathan. Not long after, David was coronated as the king of Israel. As king, David served his nation well. He conquered Jerusalem and made it Israel's capital. He successfully defended the nation from its enemies, and more. It should be noted also that this is the same David who wrote many of the Psalms. After 40 years of ruling Israel, David was succeeded by Solomon, who, like his father, is remembered as an excellent king. When he assumed the throne, God asked him what he wanted most and Solomon selflessly requested the wisdom to lead his people well. God granted that, and more. Thus, we remember Solomon as Israel's wisest king. And he also wrote several of the Bible's wisdom books, including the Song of Psalms, or Song of Solomon as it's known, Ecclesiastes, and the Proverbs. Solomon's wealth was nigh beyond measure, as the Queen of Sheba remarked when she visited the courts of Israel. But perhaps Solomon's most notable contribution to the nation was that, under his rule, the canvas tabernacle of the Lord, the one used since the time of Moses, was replaced by a great temple of stone and cedar. This edifice is known to us as the First Temple, or the First Beit Hamikdash, to use the Hebrew. After Solomon, the united kingdom of Israel fractured. In 930 BC, the nation split into a northern kingdom of ten tribes, thereafter referred to as Israel, and a southern kingdom of two, thereafter called Judah. Each kingdom had its own succession of kings, and as they ruled, God raised up prophets through whom his word was made known. Here, we see prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Jonah, and more. In time, both kingdoms fell to enemies. The northern kingdom was conquered by Sargon II of Assyria in 722 BC. A century and a half later, the southern kingdom fell to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586. The fate of the ten northern tribes is unknown even to this day. The southern two, however, Judah and Benjamin, were taken by their conquerors to Babylon as captives. During this time, we hear about Daniel, who was famously thrown into a den of lions for his worship of the Lord, and also of Esther, a Jewish woman who married the king of Persia and risked her life to save her people from massacre. The Babylonian captivity ended when Cyrus, king of Persia, conquered the Babylonians, and allowed the Israelites to return to their country. The books Ezra, Nehemiah, and others chronicle the people's homecoming and the eventual rebuilding of Jerusalem and God's temple, now the second temple. Friends, this is where we will leave the Old Testament. Its timeline spanned millennia, and its focus was a man named Abraham and the people group that is, the Israelites, or Hebrews, as they were called by foreigners, that descended from him. Abraham's immediate descendants lived where he did, in the swath of land called Canaan, and known to them as the Promised Land. The generation centered around Abraham's great-grandchildren took the family to Egypt, where they lived for many generations under increasingly hostile conditions, at the end being little different than slaves. Moses led the people out from Egypt. During his leadership, the Jewish faith was organized, as were the people themselves. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, but then finally returned to the promised land that Abraham and his children had known. Joshua led the conquest, and after the land was settled, the judges ruled. After them, Israel reorganized into a kingdom, ruled by Saul, then David, then Solomon. Then, the kingdom divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Kings ruled the land, and prophets served as God's mouthpieces. The northern kingdom fell to enemies, followed by the southern. Those from the southern kingdom were brought to Babylon as slaves, but they were freed about 70 years later. They returned once again to the promised land to rebuild. The Old Testament paints the picture of a nation that rises and falls, struggles and adapts, but more than anything holds on to its God. They cling to the Lord in hope, in bitterness, in anger and confusion, in contention and wrestling, but steadfastly through it all. In the Old Testament, there are books of history, poetry, of wisdom and aphorisms, of instruction, of prophecy, both apocryphal and explicit. The youngest book of the Old Testament was written in the ballpark of 450 B.C., but we know from extra-biblical sources that after the return from Babylon and rebuilding of Jerusalem, Israel continued as a figure of oppression and subservience. By the dawning of the New Testament, it had been conquered by the Empire of Rome. Chapter 6, Intermission and Segmenting the Bible. Here, we can take a quick break from the narrative and discuss how the familiar Bible came to be. The moieties of the Bible are the Old and New Testaments. Christianity grew from Judaism, and therefore, the Old Testament is actually the contents of the Jewish Bible, just with some portions ordered differently, and most of its content was oral, long before it was put to pen and paper. The New Testament, on the other hand, is Christian only, and it was written as or very shortly after its described events took place. Although all the smaller works that have been collected into the Bible were written no later than about 100 AD, and as said, some of it is far earlier than that, the familiar arrangement of those documents was not finalized until somewhere around 400 AD. In the 13th century, most books of the Bible were subdivided into chapters, and those into verses in the 16th century. Title headers came even more recently, and usually differ across various editors and publishers. And although chapters and verses create nice breaks in the text, and are helpful for reference, be wary of the segmentation that was not present in the original writings. Sometimes, they unintentionally separate similar ideas from, At times, even separating a single thought across two chapters. On a separate but related topic, many people question the validity of the Bible and how closely the one on your shelf resembles the original works from thousands of years ago. There are troves of scholarly research that treat the topic exhaustively, but suffice it to say that not only is the modern Bible exceptionally unaltered from its ancient original, but the authorship of its many books particularly those of the New Testament attributed to Paul, Peter, Luke, and others, are without sound scholarly dispute. What you read in your Bible today is, for all intents and purposes, unaltered since its text was first put to paper. Furthermore, the Bible is not a translation of a translation of a scribe's redaction, etc. ad nauseum. Though it is true that, for example, Jesus most likely gave his sermons in Aramaic, Though they are recorded using Greek in the New Testament, any worthwhile translation of the Bible returns to that original Greek for its content, not to a previously translated Bible. And although every translator must balance exegesis, eisegesis, and hermeneutics, that is, when to apply direct word for word translations, personal understanding, and modified verbiage, any bilingual person can corroborate the understanding that this is not personal interpretation as we understand that process, nor does it render a translation invalid. Rather, the Bibles that exist today, despite being written thousands of years ago, are remarkably accurate and, of course, contain truths that are still just as valid now as they were way back when. Chapter 7, Jesus If you pay close attention to your calendar and the dawning of new years each 1st of January, then you might realize that the world has built its timeline around an origin just over 2,000 years ago. That starting point is the birth of arguably the most significant figure in human history, Jesus. This is also where the New Testament begins, Four books of the Bible, each of which is termed a gospel, which, derived from the Greek, means good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John focus solely on Jesus, the events of his birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. They begin with the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph were an engaged couple with a problem. Mary was pregnant, but Joseph was not the father. A divine messenger had told Mary that she would become pregnant despite never having had intercourse, and that the child would be the Jewish people's, her people's, long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, whose name would be Jesus. Joseph, too, received instructions to follow through with the marriage and believe Mary's account. Her pregnancy took place during a Roman census, which required that all heads of house, Joseph being such a person returned to their ancestral hometown to be counted. Joseph's home was Bethlehem, a town not far from Jerusalem. Although the census did not require that Mary accompany Joseph, she did. Thus, they spent the latter part of her pregnancy with the extended family in Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. Jesus was born. His birth was attended not only by Joseph and the household, but by shepherds who, while they were guarding their flocks at night, had been visited by a whole host of heavenly beings who announced the birth and bid the odd shepherds to attend. Some time later, probably between Jesus' first and second birthdays, a caravan from the east arrived at Jerusalem and announced that they had come to pay homage to the newborn king. When the visitors arrived at Mary, Joseph, and infant Jesus, They honored the family with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The caravan then returned to their place of origin, but there was trouble in their wake. Herod, whose title was King of the Jews, though in reality he was a vassal king of Rome, and not strictly speaking even Jewish, was alarmed by the visitor's announcement that a new king of the Jews had been born, one who draws attention of even the far corners of the earth. So... Much like Pharaoh at the beginning of the Exodus story, Herod ordered the slaughter of all male infants in the surrounding area. But like Moses so long ago, baby Jesus was saved by his parents. They were told by God to flee for Egypt that very night. They obeyed, and Jesus lived. Some years later, they returned to Israel and settled in the northern part of the country, a region called the Galilee, in a town called Nazareth. There, as Jesus grew up, he became a laborer, and possibly even learned a trade. There is a chance that he became a carpenter, but there is no evidence to support that assertion. What we are certain of, though, is that sometime in his early adulthood, likely around age 30, he began a public ministry based in Capernaum, a crossroads town on the northern shores of Lake Galilee. His public life began with his own baptism— He came to John, a man who was baptizing Jews in the Jordan River and proclaiming the impending arrival of Messiah. John baptized Jesus, and then the Spirit of God descended upon him. From here, Jesus retreated farther into the wilderness for 40 days to fast, meditate, pray, and rise above temptation. So here we've seen the Christmas story. Joseph and pregnant Mary, the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem and the shepherds who came to greet them. Not at the same time, though still the tail end of the Christmas drama, we saw that the family was visited by a caravan from the east. It was led by wise men, sometimes called Magi. We don't know how many were there, but the Bible mentions three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After the wise men depart for the east, Mary, Jesus, and Joseph depart to the west, fleeing to Egypt for safety. Years later, They returned to Israel and lived in Nazareth. Even more years after that, Jesus was baptized by John and began his ministry from the town of Capernaum. One of the first things Jesus did was gather together 12 key votaries that we refer to as the 12 disciples or 12 apostles. They were a diverse group of various ages, trades, and degrees of activism, but they all left their former lives to answer Jesus' call to follow. Their names were Peter, also called Simon or Cephas, his brother Andrew, James and his younger brother John, Philip, Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, Levi, also called Matthew, Thomas, also called Didymus, which means twin, another John, another Simon, Judas, also called Jude or Thaddeus, And finally, another Judas, who is distinguished with the epithet Iscariot. These followers studied under Jesus and joined in his preaching and performing miracles. After about three years of this ministry, it culminated in a final climactic week, which we now celebrate annually as Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter. The first Holy Week began with Jesus arriving at Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover. As he approached the city, he was celebrated with a victorious king's triumph he riding on a donkey and the crowds lining the paths waving palm branches and spreading their cloaks on the ground before him he went to the temple and pronounced his judgment upon it that it was no longer his father's house but a place for snakes and thieves therefore it was condemned to destruction within that generation as an fyi in 70 ad The temple was destroyed within that generation, just as Jesus had announced. Jesus also shared the Passover meal with his disciples. This was the Last Supper. After the meal, they retired just outside the city walls to an olive orchard called the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus prayed fervently. When he had finished, a group of soldiers, guided by the disciple Judas Iscariot, arrested jesus judas had betrayed jesus to the jewish high priest in exchange for 30 pieces of silver following his arrest jesus was brought to the high priest and the jewish vassal king who violating their own system of jurisprudence witnesses evidence etc hastily sentenced him to death on charges that included blasphemy however since execution had to be sanctioned by the roman governor Jesus was next arraigned before him. His name was Pontius Pilate. He, though, did not believe that Jesus had done anything worthy of death. Nevertheless, pressured by the political situation, he felt compelled to appease the Jewish high council. As part of this, he let the Jewish people themselves choose between the execution of Jesus or another criminal whose name was Barabbas. The Jewish leaders riled the small group to choose that Barabbas go free. Thus, the choice was made, and Jesus was condemned to die. Because Jesus was not a citizen of Rome, he was put to death in the following way. First, he was scourged. That is, two Roman soldiers, specialized to the task, alternated whipping him with metal or bone-tipped, multi-tailed leather whips. Although a typical Jewish flogging Did not exceed 40 lashes less one, for a total of 39, this was a Roman execution, and the soldiers were permitted to continue the process indefinitely, with no upper limit to the amount of lashes, so long as Jesus did not die there on the spot. When the scourging was complete, Jesus was made to carry his cross, or at least the crossbeam of it, from the praetorium at which he was whipped to the crucifixion spot. Unable to complete the task himself, a bystander named Simon was enlisted to help him carry the load to his destination. As always, the crucifixion happened in a public place, usually along a busy road, so that the victim could serve as an example for others. In Jesus' case, it happened at the Hill of the Skull, translated as Golgotha or a Calvary. Jesus was stripped, mocked, given a crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, and elevated for all to see. The process took several hours, but as it was ending, with his dying breath, Jesus cried out loudly and powerfully, It is finished. And there, upon that splintered wood, he died. After the death, a follower of Jesus, a man named Joseph, from Arimathea, retrieved the body, and, with the others, placed it inside his own tomb. The tomb was carved into rock, had a large stone for a door, and, until now, had never been used. With twilight and sabbath fast approaching, there was not enough time to thoroughly prepare the body. Instead, it was quickly wrapped, placed, and secured by rolling the great stone in front of the entrance. After the sabbath, they would return to finish the burial process. Following the arrest of Jesus the night prior, Thursday night, at the Garden of Gethsemane, the twelve disciples had dispersed, lest they too be captured. By Sunday morning, most, if not all of them, had regrouped to a safe house. We do know, though, that Judas Iscariot was not there. Following his betrayal of Jesus, he regretted his actions and hanged himself. Nevertheless, the disciples were still keeping low, And contemplating their next moves. The women, however, Mary, who was from Magdala, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others, since they were less likely to be harassed or arrested, boldly ventured forth Sunday morning to return to the tomb and complete their lugubrious task of burial. To their astonishment, when they arrived, not only were the soldiers who were supposed to be guarding the tomb absent, but the heavy stone that sealed the door had been pushed aside. Inside the tomb, they found no evidence of grave robbery or other foul play. Instead, there was the linen body wrapped to one side, and to the other, the face covering neatly folded. Mary Magdalene wept bitterly, But lo! There appeared Jesus, not as a specter, but in a body renewed, and he told her, Why do you cry? Are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember, this is what I said would happen. Fear not, but go and tell the others. So they did. They ran to tell Peter and John and the others. In the coming days, Jesus himself appeared to all of them, and then to others, even at one time to a crowd at least five hundred strong. For forty days he remained with them. At the end of this time, Jesus gathered his followers on a hill outside of Jerusalem. There, he commissioned them to share their story and gather others to their new congregation. Then, Jesus ascended into the clouds. Chapter 8 The Movement Suffuses After the Gospels, the Bible transitions into accounts of the early church. The Acts of the Apostles, usually shortened as the Book of Acts, describes various tales of the early church and how its followers, aided by the Holy Spirit, spread the message of Jesus throughout the known world. Following Acts, the New Testament is composed of several letters between the early apostles and the churches they planted. Finally, the New Testament concludes with the revelation of John, in which the author describes an apocryphal vision of chaos, destruction, and finally, the consummation of God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. Beginning from the ascension of Jesus, just described, Jesus had told his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to visit them. Ten days later, the event occurred. Tongues of fire fell upon the group gathered in prayer and worship. Each of them, then, went out into the street and began miraculously preaching the message of Jesus in foreign languages, so that each person in the crowded, metropolitan Jerusalem could hear the gospel proclaimed in his or her own language. Many people were converted that day. As the Cressive movement gathered momentum, its opposition grew as well. The Jewish leadership that had once conspired to execute Jesus were quite dismayed to see that the following had grown since the crucifixion, instead of fizzling out as they had hoped. Therefore they harried the Jesus movement as best they could, but despite even managing to arrest some of the more prominent members, they just couldn't quell it. A rising star in the Jewish courts, Saul from Tarsus, a Pharisee with impeccable credentials, was particularly outraged by Jesus and the promulgation of his message which from Saul's viewpoint, was heinously blasphemous. He led the persecution of those early Christians and sought out their gatherings across the country. He even journeyed beyond Israel to Damascus to disrupt the Christians there, but en route he had a life-changing experience. A bright light appeared before Saul, and he was thrown from his horse. Jesus appeared to him and asked, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The experience blinded him for three days, until a Christ follower named Ananias visited Saul, restored his sight, and baptized him as a follower of Jesus. Saul took his conversion seriously. He began using the Roman form of his name, Paul, and spent the next several years intensely learning from the disciples. Today, we regard him as the Apostle Paul, and one of the most important members of the early church. His vocation was to take the message of Jesus beyond the Jews and into the Gentile world. Over the next many decades, he planted churches throughout the Roman Empire, particularly in Asia Minor, places like modern-day Greece and Turkey. He wrote letters to those churches and to individuals, several of which have survived and been included in the New Testament of the Bible. The other disciples also did their part to spread the good news, taking the message wherever God called them. Some stayed in Israel, while others went afield to the far corners of the earth, to Africa, India, Rome, and beyond. Chapter 9 Epilogue As previously mentioned, the 70-ish books that formed the Bible were compiled and ordered sometime around the 5th century, give or take. Its more neoteric parts were written around 80 or 90 AD, while the oldest works originate many thousands of years before that. Today, we covered an incredible amount, but there is still so much left unsaid and unstudied. My goal was to provide an overview of the Bible's timeline and some of its major events, ones that you may have heard of but didn't know how to place in the overall picture. I hope that now it makes a bit more sense and that the pieces fit more snugly. When it comes to the Bible, the content, the characters, the setting, the writing styles, even, are as varied as human existence itself. There is consistency, though. The meta theme, The leitmotif of the entire Bible, if nothing else, is the interaction of mankind and God, particularly how the family of Abraham grew in their understanding of, and their relationship with, the divine. And why we, so many centuries later, still read it is because of that very reason. For the Bible has the power to help you refine your understanding of humanity and More importantly, come to know God. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. My name is Ben Laboot, and the aim of this podcast is to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Today's episode was the first of Season 3. New episodes are released every two weeks, but know that you can find every episode, also blogs and more, at storiesofsymmetry.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry. Invite your friends and family, as we'll be back in two weeks to talk about fig trees and their humble fruit. Until then, go with God, go in peace.